1: In 1985, Tennessee reported 25 cases of AIDS to the CDC. At the time, there was a lot of misinformation attached to the disease. Many believed that it only affected gay men or drug users. This mistaken belief just allowed the disease to spread more quickly. And the social stigma around HIV and AIDS only perpetuated the the neglect of those already infected. But here in Middle Tennessee, a group of dedicated people organized to spread awareness and it helps save lives as a result. Later this hour, we'll learn more about the history of AIDS in our region from people who have provided services, education, and support to those in need. But first, yesterday, the Tennessee Lookout reported that the Department of Children's Services has been unnecessarily placing children in its custody in hospitals, sometimes for months at a time. The embattled agency has come under scrutiny for its treatment of kids and its care, staff shortages, and lack of transparency. Joining me now to help unpack this is Anita Wadwani, senior reporter at the Tennessee Lookout, who broke the story. Hey, Anita, welcome back to This is Nashville.
2: Thanks for having me again.
1: Pleasure to have you with us. All right. So give us some background on this story. How did you discover that kids are being unnecessarily hospitalized by DCS.
2: Well, I I guess I wanted to start by saying that I can't really emphasize um, strongly enough the level of crisis facing this Tennessee's Child Welfare Agency. Um, And it's a crisis that affects children on an everyday basis. Uh, The DCS's responsibility is to protect children who've been subject to abuse and neglect, uh, often taking them from those abusive homes and finding safe and caring places for them to be. And right now it is abjectly failing to do that. And and that is impacting real children in Tennessee every single day. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the... um, the hospitalization of kids, I guess I would rewind back to last summer, uh, the summer of 2021, uh, when we reported that uh, some children were sleeping in state office buildings. We obtained a video secretly shot by a caseworker that showed kids lying on the floor without mattresses, pillows, or blankets. And we learned that DCS simply did not have places to put them. They didn't have appropriate foster homes. They also didn't have um, treatment centers for kids who maybe needed medical substance abuse, other kinds of treatment. Um, And some of the kids, you know, are are taken into homes in the middle or taken from their homes in the middle of the night. um, And you don't need an urgent, uh, an emergency place to sleep since then. um, Yeah.
1: No, continue. I'm sorry.
2: Well, you know, since since then, you know, you all um, channel five, the Tennessean has continued to report on the fact that kids are sleeping in state office buildings because there is no place else to put them. And then earlier this month um, at a budget hearing where the uh, the agency's new commissioner, Margie Quinn, she's been on the job since September, uh, mentioned that in some instances, kids who are too disruptive when they're sleeping in, on those office floors are being taken to hospitals. Um <laughs> So I was really curious about that. I asked DCS a bunch of questions I haven't gotten um, that haven't fully been answered. But what I was able to learn is that there are children who do not need hospital care, who are being hospitalized. uh, DCS says between one and 264 days Mm. because there is simply no place else to put them.
1: Have, have you been able to discover how many kids have been in this type of situation?
2: Uh, that is a question that DCS has not provided an answer to, and that question's been outstanding for several weeks.
1: All right, so we've got kids who have no medical reason to be hospitalized, and some who need to have medical care. Tell me, what, what have you learned about the kids who require treatment and their placements?
2: If you're if you're talking about the hospitalized kids, Khalil, is that what you're asking? Yeah. So it, it's not clear that those kids require treatment. Um, what I have been told by DCS, um, which I will just say, um, has a lot on their plate. Um, they no longer have uh, communications staff who would typically, whose job it would be to answer reporters' questions. And the person who's trying to answer my question has a complete other job. Um, But what he has been able to tell me is that uh, the kids who are winding up in hospitals, some of them are older kids who are in wheelchairs. Some are kids with tracheostomies. Neither of those um, situations precludes a a child from being in a home, Mm -hmm. but they are trickier to place. So for example, you would need a foster home that was wheelchair accessible, or you would need a foster parent who is trained at cleaning a tracheostomy, tracheostomy care. So that, that is definitely a challenge, but it's not clear to me that they're getting any, you know, medical treatment in these hospitals. I, I, That's not why they're there. They're there because um, the agency is unable to find more suitable placements. What about
1: education? I mean, are these kids going to school at all?
2: So I did ask DCS that question. Um, What they told me is that their education is the responsibility of the, the child's original school district. Um, they didn't they weren't specific about <laughs> whether the school districts were meeting that responsibility. And I, I think what that would look like would be remote learning. Um, and for kids who didn't have a school, for whatever reason, it would be DCS's responsibility to provide that education. So I, I know what DCS says it's supposed to look like. Uh, it's not entirely clear to me what it what in practice is actually happening with these kids education. And, you know, I'll just go back and reemphasize that the the range, the upper range so far of how long a child has been in a hospital is 264 days. That's almost nine months. That's almost the entire length of a school year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's quite a long time. Um to not have um, like a a stable educational system in place.
1: You know, you mentioned DCS's new commissioner, Margie Quinn. What has she said about all of this?
2: Well, she said publicly in, um, you know, for example, in that budget hearing, uh, she talked about what a she didn't use the word crisis. I will, because I, I think that's clear, but she talked about what a terrible situation she had stepped into as new commissioner in September. Uh, DCS has um, almost 500 vacancies and social workers. And these are the hands-on people who are meeting with these children, figuring out what their needs are and finding them appropriate care. Um, among first year social workers, this would be their first year on the job. The turnover is 50%. So half of all people leave before they get to the end of their first year on the job. Their caseloads for the caseworkers who are still there are double and triple what they should be. You know, I've heard various numbers, but um, some are hand- handling nearly 60 cases where the standard should be around 20. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also said that you know, for, for kids who need residential treatment, and again, that's you know, a kid who might have substance abuse need, has mental health care needs for other reasons. Um, she she said during the budget hearing that there are enough beds in Tennessee. These are facilities mostly operated by private providers. And there are enough beds for every kid who needs one, but DCS doesn't pay the rates that these providers are charging. And so these beds are, are going to kids who, um, you know, private insurance is paying. In some cases, child welfare agencies in other states are putting their kids with needs in these Tennessee facilities.
1: How has Governor Lee responded to all of this news?
2: He said a couple of different things. Um, One thing he said was he he used the word immediate or this needs to be taken care of immediately. And one solution that I I believe they're moving towards is privatizing some social work. So hiring agencies, nonprofit, for-profit agencies who would bring that kind of social worker force to... um, the, the frontline force to begin to care for these kids. But, it, you know, just kind of looking really carefully at what he said, it's not clear to me that that would be put in place immediately. That, that appears to be part of the, uh over 150 million that DCS is requesting for next year's budget, which, you know, that budget doesn't even begin to till July. That's when the money comes Mm. in the bank. So you wouldn't get that underway, you know, even till much later after that. Um, uh, And I might be wrong, but I, this is just what's been said publicly. Um, He's also urged DCS to be really transparent about what's going on. I frankly have not, uh, seen that to be the case. I think it's very hard for for advocates, for journalists, for people who really want to understand not only what's going on inside DCS, but how we got here uh, to have a clear picture.
1: Anita Wadwani is senior reporter for the Tennessee Lookout. You can find her story on this episode's post at thisisnashville.org. Anita, thanks again for being here and thanks as always for your reporting. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll explore how the AIDS epidemic impacted Middle Tennessee. Have you or someone you know been affected by AIDS? Join the conversation. Tweet us at This is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Ekalona, and this is Nashville. In 1985, Tennessee reported 26 cases of AIDS to the CDC but infections were already aggressively spreading in larger cities. And here in Nashville, a group of volunteers recognized the looming crisis. So they began a grassroots effort to address the growing AIDS epidemic in the region. Later that year, they formed the nonprofit Nashville Cares. Since that time, they've been spreading awareness and offering services to people who are infected. My next guest was head of Nashville Cares for 25 years. Dr. Joseph Interante, thanks for being here and welcome to This is Nashville. Great to be here. Great to have you with us. So, you know, Nashville Cares has been around nearly a decade by the time you were hired in 1994. Eight years. Eight Mm -hmm. years. What was the state of HIV HIV and AIDS in Nashville and in Middle Tennessee at that time?
3: In 94 when I got here? um, Well, it had been steadily uh, growing in terms of numbers. Um, The, uh, uh, like, it's I would say that I was surprised when I came down here, and that reflected my own uh, Yankee biases, prejudices. That the community I thought was engaged more proactively around HIV than what I was used to in Ohio, and I think the reasons for that were that there were um, that there was some civic and political leadership that had been affected on a personal level by employees who had um, died of AIDS, um, and who responded positively and went beyond that to then move beyond the boundaries of their institutions into the community mm-hmm. to begin to build a community response to HIV. Um, and so you had companies like Ingram Industries to give them credit. Um, Bill Bredesen, as uh, mayor, would, had a task force that was working on building an outpatient medical clinic that could avoid the, uh, the overwhelming and overcrowding and emergency rooms to, in hospitals that had been occurring on the coast. Um, there was a public-private partnership that began to draw significant funding called the Community AIDS Partnership that was managed through United Way. Um, to build prevention and direct services um, uh, and so that's the positive side mm-hmm. the negative side is you're still dealing uh, with a disease for which there are uh, no really known treatments certainly no cure no vaccine um, and uh, stigma is uh, significant and the fear that people experience about what will happen to me my loved ones If people find out that I'm living with this disease was pretty pervasive Um, so that and and people still for the most part were finding out that they had this disease when they started to get sick so that in those early days I think one of the important things that cares provided was an effort to make sure that people knew that they were loved and they were not alone and to provide them with an opportunity to die with
1: dignity how about Nashville Carrots at that time? I mean, what condition was it in when you got started at the organization? Um, well, it was
3: it was much smaller in terms of numbers, in terms of funding, in terms of programs. Um, some of the important uh, material support programs. The housing assistance programs, the food pantry, things like that, transportation were were virtually non-existent because of a lack of uh, funding to provide support for those. Um, I will I will say that um, you know it had gone it was going through the growing pains that uh, comparable organizations around the country were dealing with um, a, a small staff, um, a, a, a sort of a bit. Internally uh, disorganized, at Mm -hmm. times dysfunctional, um, and uh, a a transition which is never easy in which volunteers, which was entirely what the organization was when it started, um, began to realize that the, the work was so large that they couldn't do it exclusively by volunteers. And so they began to turn over some of those responsibilities to staff. Mm-hmm. To do that effectively, you've got to have a level of trust. That doesn't happen automatically. So that all of the growing pains involved in building relationships of trust and knowing that the people you hire are going to deal responsibly and with accountability doesn't happen
1: overnight. You Well, one thing that you all did was grow that responsibility and accountability to really open up programs. You spread awareness and About HIV and AIDS, but you also increased access to testing during that time and and since. Why was that so important at the time? Um, Well,
3: certainly it was important because that provided people with the basis for being able to decide, um, you know, what courses of action. The first step in taking charge and control over managing this disease in, in your body, and I speak as somebody who was living with found out it was HIV positive in 1985, yeah. is to, in fact, find that out for sure. Um, and, uh, and that allows you to begin to take steps to, to link into areas of support. Um, there was a lot of, there were a number of concerns and uncertainties about the tests. Um, and so, uh, you know, CARES uh, began to try to bring testing out into uh, community locations, you know, initially, um, it was where we would go and set up um, uh, events, bring in personnel from the local health department who would do what were essentially blood draws, because it was a blood-based test. Um, and I'm trying to think, what year did did oral testing come in? Do you remember, Dwayne? 99. 99, okay. Um, you know, that made, that was really a sea change, because it then allowed us um, independently to... Um, to bring testing out into a whole bunch of different locales. Um, And even initially, when it still took a week or more to get results, one of the things that I think was of note is that we always had very good follow-up. We did not have a significant problem in people not coming back for test results. And I think the reason for that was because people trusted us which was the whole point of having an organization like CARES do this, Mm -hmm. you know, to avoid the questions around, um, you know, what's gonna happen to this information? Who's gonna get it? What do I do around these sorts of things? Um, And uh, I will also say that to the credit of the state health department, um, they were extraordinarily serious about preserving the confidentiality of that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, they never used it for any other purposes than for some planning around public health needs,
1: um, and that's to their credit because that didn't happen everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You now, at the time, you know, the disease was thought only to affect gay men and people who used drugs, mm-hmm. but there were racial disparities as well. What led to such disproportionate numbers among African Americans and other minorities at the time?
3: This um, proportion, numbers, such. Well, I think what, well, one of the things I think that needs to be made clear is that if you're talking about the impact within African American communities, you also need to acknowledge that a significant number of the people in the Af- African Americans who were uh, impacted by HIV were, from the beginning, continue to be black gay and bisexual men. Mm-hmm. Um, as in the white community, it was uh, gay and bisexual men. So um it was, you know, the irony is that age has always been both been a gay disease and not a gay disease at the same time. Um uh, gay and bisexual men were always disproportionately impacted, um, in uh uh you know, regardless of, of racial background. Um and uh the uh you know it's it's although I would, the other thing that I would simply add is that um, there were, there were all, women were always impacted from the beginning of the disease. Um, and uh, initially, uh, from the statistics, they were um, uh, mainly it was uh, through intravenous drug use or partners of drug users mm-hmm. as such. Um, and then, and I remember, you know, it was only a few years into the epidemic when they realized, in fact that, Um, Despite initial beliefs, this was a disease that was also transmitted through heterosexual activity as well. Um, And so that became a significant source of infections among women Mm -hmm. as well.
1: Um, if, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Akalona. We're talking this hour about the history of AIDS and HIV in Middle Tennessee. Now, my next guest helps spread the word about AIDS in the African-American community. Dwayne Jenkins is the GLBT Prevention and Education Services Director at Nashville Cares. Dwayne, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having us. So you started the first AIDS education and support program for black men in the city, known as Brothers United. How were you able to break through some of the racial barriers of AIDS education and outreach here in Nashville at that time?
4: Uh, I think one of the uh, great things about me moving from New York, coming to Nashville, uh, and then right as Joe came on board, you know, started as a volunteer. And so with my volunteerism, I saw that there was a need. Uh, And then I was in the right place at the right time because I was always going to the jails and prisons, doing prevention programs. With one of the coordinators, and at that point, uh, the trajectory of people living with HIV had really turned black and brown. We could see, and so um, Joe, at the time, and the other education director said, "We need to do a focus group and let's see, you know, what we can do." And I was part of that one, that uh, original focus group, and then. Once we developed the name and everything went really quickly at the time, Mm -hmm. we just went out. And that was one to the benefit of Joe and Nashville Cares. They were like, let's get in the community. You know, we weren't looking for funding. It was just a volunteer group, a volunteer organization coming to support. So at the times we went to the clubs, we went to the churches. We had all of these different things, but we just went out there. We got what we needed from Cares. And this is before testing. So condoms, literature and all of that. Uh, But it was what we were welcome. And Mm -hmm. one of the great things that was, I think, a little bit different about being an outsider was that there was no pressure on the people who lived here. No one knew my face. So I was like, "Okay, can you welcome me? Can we come on in? And um, and so there wasn't that kind of a pressure. So the doors were open. There were things happening um, like with Reverend Sanders and everything. So we were able to get in and do the things that we needed to do and partner, Mm -hmm. as uh, Joe mentioned, even with the health department and all of that. We went, we had those events, and they were good enough to come out and do the testing with us in partnership.
1: You you, you say you, you all were welcome, but I'm sure that there were misconceptions that you were battling at the same time. And, and from what I understand, despite all your efforts, you had a really tough time reaching African-American women during then. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why do you think that was?
4: Well, at first, uh, again, the, the focus was black and gay men. So same gender loving men. And so what we started to do is we realized that the numbers were also increasing within women. And so we would have to ask either our lesbian sisters or our cisgendered heterosexual sisters, like, hey, could you come to this event? It's not just a gay event at the club. It's not just this. And they had to really open their eyes. And because a lot of the, let's say, the programmings may have been at the time in LGBTQ spaces, Mm -hmm. we had to get them sort of. Okay to do that. But then we also had the issue of if we're hosting it here, I may not want my neighbor who may be female to all of a sudden be able to go. I knew it, Mm -hmm. you know, about Mm -hmm. your uh, sexuality or something like that. So we we had to balance it on both ways to go. We need to give you all the space. And at that time, as Joe mentioned, we were able to get other funding for other programs. And so we were able to sort of be very um, intentional on the programming so we had something for women specifically we had something for prison we had something for gay men we had something for black gay men we were able to sort of you know divide the pie Mm -hmm. and then be able to go look we we understand you we hear you let's do it this way and then we would all come together when we needed to but that was one of the things that made it easier was the programming and to be able to speak to those specific populations with someone front facing so mm-hmm. i could be there but i may not say anything
1: yeah you all you know? over the years you all have proved to be very adept at that balance <laughs> yes we try to yes so now let's hear from someone who has experienced this disease firsthand regina beck has been living with hiv for 28 years and she joins me now regina thank you so much for being here welcome but this is Nashville. Well, thank you. Can can you tell me about when you were first diagnosed with HIV? Uh,
5: 1989.
1: That was the year. Mhm. How did you respond when you get the news?
5: I was uh I was in denial. Actually, uh, I ended up being retested in 93. I want to say 93 and um uh, it was cause a friend came to me and said that they had contracted it, and we used to share needles together when I was doing drugs. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, that's the year I decided I was going to do something about it because I, my first diagnosis, I was, in, I, I, am, I don't have it, you know. Mm-hmm. I, 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 was in denial and I didn't want to own up to it. So I become accountable in ninety three, and uh, when it got tested and. That's the year I actually accepted the fact that I was HIV positive.
1: So what'd you do after you accepted that?
5: Uh, Actually, I I, I had a bad response to it. I really didn't want to accept the diagnosis. I um, started back getting high. I got back on drugs. Uh, I tried to kill myself. I tried to OD. I done a lot of self-destructive things because uh, at that time, Be diagnosed with that, you mean you was gonna end up with full-blown AIDS and you were gonna die. Mm -hmm. That's all the knowledge I knew, as I had of it at that time. Um, And being ignorant to the facts, uh, I just went through a lot of bad behaviors. And and actually, I uh, I got involved in some of the programs they had through Cares and through the First Response and with Metropolitan, and got. more in, I got more information about living with the disease and what the medications did, and that that a lot of the information about the medicines would do this and would do that I found out were were just fallacies They weren't true mm. and um uh, I started uh, actually going to the doctor and I had a great doctor uh Dr refinemes was one of the great greatest doctors here in Nashville, Tennessee and uh he remained my doctor up until last year, until he retired. Mm-hmm. Um But to be uh able to get the information to know that it's okay that you could live with HIV. And uh it, it changed my life. Actually, being infected was a blessing for me because it helped me um redirect my myself. And now I wanted to be more of a catalyst to help other women and other people living with HIV. After I got myself together, I say around. Ninety nine is when I started working with Street Works with Ron Crowder. Well, and, um, why is it important with you to reach out and to help people in this way? Because I know, as it was for me when I first found out about it, I took it as a death sentence, and it's not—it's not that way. You know, it, this disease is no different than cancer, or diabetes, or some of the things that we have out here already. That if you live right, take your medicines. And a change a lot of bad behavior, you can live. You can live on to as long as you don't step out in front of a bus. You're okay. Mm-hmm. You know.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I understand you have grandbabies now.
5: Yeah, I have three grandgirls. They um, they are my life. Uh, one's sixteen, one's nine, and one's four. And I, I look forward to seeing them grow grow up and have their own children and all of that. And uh, I make sure, like, the 16-year-old, we have talks. She knows I have HIV. Mm-hmm. I, I I feel like that you have to be open with kids today because the information, though you think it would be more plentiful now, is really not. It's still not being discussed like it should be. Well, I think it should be more uh, aggressive behavior as far as getting the message out there because, Even the older people now are still having bad behaviors that are still spreading the disease. And I I can't see that happening now, but it's true. Mm. Now, Dwayne, while we've got medical advancements
1: to help people fight the disease, how important is it to keep people aware about the risks regarding AIDS that Regina was just talking about.
4: It's very, very important. And unfortunately, in the past couple of years with the um, COVID pandemic and everything else, people going inward and and staying away from things and other individuals, uh, it's been really challenging. It's been really, really challenging. The great thing is that we, you know, the great thing and the bad thing is social media has helped a lot to try and get the word out, to try and say like, hey, don't forget about this. Don't forget about that. Um, And education wise, uh, as we are coming back into getting into the normalcy, uh, is trying to rebuild those old bridges with the uh, high school, the colleges and all the other places that other institutions we can get into uh, to try and do that because a lot of people have left. And so some people have graduated, left or changed jobs. And so um, trying to reallocate ourselves to go, hey, remember, we used to come out here, you know, once a quarter or twice a semester. And so uh, that's what the prevention team is really doing at Nashville Care, just trying to get back out. We just got a new mobile medical unit, so we're taking all of our service out to the streets instead of waiting for them to come across one of our buildings, either at Thompson Lane or Metroplex. So it's really trying to just totally shift. What COVID did for us was to help us use our phones more help us do some of the things all the paper has sort of disappeared which Mm -hmm. is great so now it's a lot of the red tape has helped us so uh the importance is to get that energy to get back out in the community uh to get do this work because as she said People don't remember things, and they still continue to use uh, agencies like ours as an emergency. Mm-hmm. So if something happens, they didn't use a condom or the condom broke, that's when they remember. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, there's something out there.
1: Yeah, they <laughs> they got to know the time is now.
4: Right. The time is right now.
1: That was Dwayne Jenkins with Nashville Cares. He was joined by Dr. Joseph Interante and Regina Beck, who has been living with HIV for 28 years. I want to thank you all for being on the show. Thank you all for the stories. And thank, thank you for the work that you're doing. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll look at the current state of AIDS and how it prepared us for another pandemic. Tweet us your questions and comments at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil a. Colonna, and this is Nashville. In the late 90s, Tennessee became one of the first states to criminalize HIV transmission. Suddenly, if you passed HIV to someone, you were a sex offender. Needless to say, the stigma was real for people living with HIV and it hit our LGBTQ community especially hard. We've come a long way since then, but there's still work to do. Local artist and health educator Cynthia Harris decided to tackle this stigma with a play she wrote called The Calling is in the Body, which is based on her own experience learning about HIV in high school from a young woman named Deidre Davenport. WPLN's Latanya Turner spoke with the playwright for today's show. One of the characters Cynthia wrote is a younger version of herself. Here's a scene from her play.
2: At first,
6: the news said it was white gay men in big cities like New York or Los Angeles.
7: Cynthia, a character in the play, is on stage, processing her uncertainties and fear about AIDS.
6: How can it be just one group of people? It's all so confusing, and it doesn't make any sense.
7: The play is set in 1990, the height of the AIDS pandemic.
6: It was really scary at the time. We didn't know exactly what it was. Um, we were hearing this word. That's
7: Cynthia Harris remembering her own experiences as a high school student at the time.
6: Uh, we didn't even say it. Um, if you suspected that somebody was um, HIV positive or had AIDS, you know they might they might have that thing.
7: The play is a true story, and it's centered around Deidre Davenport, a young twenty something who had just been diagnosed with AIDS. Here's a scene from the play where Deidre tells her grandma.
6: How did he not care enough about us to know? Or did he know and just not tell me I had to find out by donating at a Red Cross blood drive? And what about school? What are my friends gonna say? So, what are you gonna do about it? Baby,
7: no matter what happens, your body is gift. Mm-hmm. Your force, your purpose, your calling, your power is always, always in your body. Mm. It was this sage advice that inspired Deidre to speak out about her condition. Cynthia remembers meeting her when she spoke at a church youth camp. She
6: introduces herself, and she's warm, and she's personable, and we're connecting because she looks like us. She looks, She's not much older than we are. Um, she's going to TSU, and we're from Nashville, so some of us are going to go there, too. And then she blows our minds and tells us that she has HIV and AIDS. she was a smart Black girl like me. How could someone like me have HIV? You cannot tell that somebody has HIV just by looking at them. I mean...
7: Did you think I was positive when I walked in? No. Deidre took her message about HIV and safe sex to schools, churches, and prisons. But by the young age of 27, she had died from AIDS complications. Still, her radical approach was taking off in pop culture.
6: She wanted people to be shocked because she wanted them to take their health very seriously. And then we get Magic Johnson in 91 coming out and saying that he's HIV positive.
8: First of all, let me say good good after late afternoon. Um, Because of uh, the HIV virus that I have attained, uh, I will have to retire from the Lakers uh, today. I just want to say that uh, I'm going to miss playing and uh, I will now become a, a spokesman for the HIV virus because I want people and young people to realize that they can uh, practice safe sex. And, uh, you know, sometimes you're a little naive about it and you think it could never happen to you. Uh, and you only thought it could happen to, you know, other people and so on and on. And uh, it has happened, but I'm going to deal with it. And my life will go on.
5: And I
6: think and, uh, that really shifted things for Black people. Um, and then we started to see hip hop artists talk more and more about it. We see TLC wearing condoms, you know, on their outfits, and Salt and Peppers um, singing songs about let's talk about sex.
7: Cynthia hopes her play will continue this important work with a new generation who no longer sees HIV AIDS as a death sentence, who can pop one pill and prevent
6: transmission or treat it. The outspoken people we might hear from today, um, the language that we have about um, protection, safety, consent, all of that comes in my mind from this experience and from developing uh, strategies because of HIV
1: Cynthia Harris is just one of the many folks continuing this work to get more information to eliminate the stigma. My next guests know all about this. I'd like to introduce Dr. Aima Onhankai the co-director of Vanderbilt University Medical Center for AIDS Research and HIV Adolescent Transition Clinic, and Dr. Brandon Jones, public relations and social media manager for Nashville Cares. Dr. Ahankai, Brandon, thank you both for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville.
9: Thanks for having us. So, Dr.
1: Ahankai, what are some of the tools that are available today to treat HIV and AIDS?
9: Yeah, we've come such a tremendous way, um, Khalil. You know, we have gone from an era where we didn't have effective treatments for HIV. Uh, you talked about that earlier in the segment, to now we can treat almost anyone with one pill once a day. And even further, we have injectable medications now where people can be treated uh, with an injection that lasts for two months. Um, so and. So we say now, you know, HIV truly is a chronic disease. It's a chronic, manageable disease. And if we diagnose and start treatment early, people live a full, long, healthy life.
1: Can you describe the typical person who you see in your clinic these days?
9: Well, I think it's a, it's a mixed bag. I do see patients at Vanderbilt's Comprehensive Care Clinic and also take care of um, in, 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 people with HIV who are hospitalized at Vanderbilt. And um, many patients are well-managed and they come in once or twice a year and we get routine blood work and, and they take their pill once a day and they're doing just fine. Um, there's a smaller minority of patients who really are struggling to manage their, their disease. And these uh, I tend to see them in the hospital either because they're coming in with a late diagnosis mm. and that may be driven by stigma or fear or uh, difficult uh, social circumstances, uh, concomitant uh, substance abuse, or mental illness, um, and so I think it's 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 a tale of kind of, of 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 two different populations. I also take care of adolescents and young adults, who are a unique group who also have some different challenges with managing.
1: What are some of those challenges with the adolescents?
9: Well. Um, you know adolescence itself is is mm-hmm. is an interesting developmental stage right so yes. i think when we we add in the idea of managing a chronic stigmatizing illness and so many many young folks are not equipped to to really do that young people want to be like their peers they just want to be like everyone else And so, for instance, what I may hear is, and and it may differ a little bit bit depending on whether they were born with HIV, so had perinatal transmission versus acquired HIV as an adolescent or young adult, Um, but they don't want to be reminded of their disease. The clinic is a reminder of their disease. The pills are a reminder of the disease. And so um, adherence to medication can be really a challenge. Um, and then we also see real drop-offs at critical times, like if, if a patient is transitioning from from one care center to another, you know, if you're tra- transitioning from a pediatric center to an adult center, and it's almost re-traumatizing to come and establish care with a new provider and tell your story all over again and be vulnerable all over again. And many people don't want to deal with that re-traumatization Or um, have, you know, just difficulty navigating the healthcare system, which Mm -hmm. we all know is not the easiest place to navigate. Mm. So so those are some of the issues.
1: Now, Brandon, you're not an adolescent, but you're a millennial. You're a younger adult.
0: Absolutely. Did you learn much about HIV and AIDS when you were growing up? Not at all. Um, When I was growing up, I felt like it was like a taboo to talk about even sex within um, the black community. Um, So, no. How did you learn about the disease? Um, I was introduced to the disease um i lived in atlanta georgia for about eight years um and i had people who would say negative things about other people who were living that they were aware that were living with this, the disease um so things like we would be out and they would say you know that person has uh, hiv or whatever or that thing um as they would call it um and i was like Oh, really? And then I was introduced to it through a partner that um, I think he was unaware. So we were um, engaged um, for, for about two years. Um, and that's when I think that I contracted it. But honestly, once I found out from someone else that he was positive, um, I was scared. I was fearful. Um, even at that time in 2018, I was fearful. Um, And we've come so far in technology and science. So um, with that being said, I had to take ownership of my life. You know, two years later, it took me two years to go get tested. Um, So, and in those two years, I was introduced to drugs. I was introduced to all these different things. And that's kind of a way that I suppressed the feeling and suppressed the thought. And like Regina said earlier, suppressed those things. But I had to Acknowledge first that this is something that you're dealing with and you need to take your health into your own hands. So I went to the doctor um, in Atlanta. My friends pushed me um, and I got into care and relocated back to Nashville where I was introduced to Nashville Cares. And it's been history since. So, you know, when you
1: talk, did you talk with your peers about this lack of awareness and how it's
0: kind of negatively
1: affecting the community?
0: Absolutely. Um, that's something. Since I've been introduced to cares, that I've done. Um, when I went to cares, they op- they welcomed me with open arms, and I feel like that's something. That's a place I didn't have prior to. Um, and that love, that affection, that nurture, that sense of nurture mm-hmm. uh, that you get from people who do ca- genuinely care. Um, it's remarkable. Um, you can't deny. It's undeniable. Um, and I've taken this information that I am learning as I grow with the organization that cares, um, all that information and instilling it back into the community, um, especially in different locations where it's more prominent than others. Why do you think it's not really being taught and exposed to younger generations? Is <sighs> it still the stigma? Is it still that going on? I absolutely think that it is stig- it's still the, it's still the stigma portion of it. Um, I also think that you have a lot of denial um, of people. So you have people that are, you know, down low, you have that are men that are down low that are missing women and vice versa. You just have all these different things within, especially the black and brown community that we face, mental health. You know, that's something that's an overarching issue that um, is bigger than HIV, but it's still a thing, you know. Um, So I believe that that's something that we still face. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
1: Point of clarity for our audience, down low is a term that describes men who are maybe in heterosexual relationships, but who are secretly having sex with men. Um, I, I wonder, you know, Dr. Ahankai, why are there still such wide disparities in managing and treating this disease and also informing people about the nuances that go along with it?
9: Yeah, I think that, you know, we can even see parallels with with the COVID pandemic. We had. A tremendous epidemic um, in the United States, and we've made, you know, definitely tremendous strides in, in our local epidemic. But what we see now, over the past several five to ten years, it's been there's been stagnant progress, um, and and we and this is what happens, you know, in a public health a uh, communicable disease like this, if you if you take the brakes off, if you say, oh, okay, oh, that's not a problem anymore, it doesn't exist, it actually won't go away, and in fact, it will get worse. So I think that, you know, regionally, we're talking about here in Tennessee and in Nashville, the, the amount of, the stigma is real. As Brandon said, the stigma is so real, and I, and I was sharing with him earlier that whenever I um, diagnose a new patient with HIV, a new young man or woman, the, the conversation is about you will be okay. You will be OK. And stigma is killing us. And whether that's people being afraid to get tested, afraid to seek care, afraid to um, come out about their sexuality with their family. Um, this is leading to a lot of delays in diagnosis. So that that's one real uh, a tremendous issue. And then the disparities, you know, HIV is not unique in this regard. You know, we see Racial and ethnic disparities across every single chronic disease there is, and so uh, HIV is, is a yet another one. And without looking at really specific approaches that say we are focusing on equity, we won't we won't get rid of those disparities. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: Brandon. Real quick, we got about twenty seconds. You know, have you used these similarities to recognition of these similarities
0: to really influence your peers to become more knowledgeable about HIV and AIDS? absolutely which exactly was which is exactly why i'm here at cares um i took the job here because not only because i'm, I'm hiv positive but because i th- feel that people need to know that there is a place for you there is somewhere that you can go get tested they will introduce you to care they will care for you and in a confidential complimentary way mm-hmm. i mean they will do that just for you and i think that's a big Brandon
1: Jones is with Nashville Cares. He was joined by Dr. Aima Ahonkai of Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I want to thank you both for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. We're gonna we're going out today on a song by one of our guests today, Regina Beck. She says this song expresses her joy of life and details her journey. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay, and Latanya Turner. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutto. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover, and the masterminds behind our theme music, LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Mary Owens, John Bridges, and Philip Stefeli Sewell. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.